Hey, this is Jared Mullins from Jackson, Ohio. Hi, this is Andy from Salem, Oregon. Hey, y'all. This is Zachary Week from Woodland, Michigan, and you are listening to the Dad Tired Podcast. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lopes. Join me every Monday as we dive into what it looks like to be men who fall in love with Jesus and help our families do the same. You can learn more about our books, resources, conferences, and even online community by going to dadtired.com. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dad Tired Show. So good to be back here with you. If you haven't signed up for our family leadership program, I highly recommend that you go do that right now. Jump on the wait list. We just had a group of guys start for our November cohort, which uh, they're already talking about how helpful it has been to them and life-changing for them. So if you're serious about leading your family well, man, I'm telling you, this is the best program for you. So spots already filled up for November. We've started that. We've closed it. But if you want to jump into December's, there is still room for that, but you need to go to dadtire.com forward slash lead, L-E-A-D, dadtire.com forward slash lead, and you can put your name on the wait list and get jumped in, not jumped in like a gang, that's intense. You can jump in to our, uh, to, <laughs> I'm going to just not edit that out, man. Don't get jumped in. Uh, you can get into the December group. Uh, hey, today's interview is really, really good and uh, much needed, but I just want to preface it by saying this. It's kind of heavy, uh, especially on the front end here as we talk about some really hard, heavy things most of us would rather turn a blind eye to what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I just think as dads, as ones that are really called to protect the vulnerable, specifically children, our children and children around the world, this is a much needed episode, but I just want to forewarn you, it's heavy stuff. It's a, there, there's some like, there's some dark stuff that we talk about on the front end of this interview, especially uh, once you get to the back half of the interview, it's going to get really practical for you as a family and just what it looks like for you as a dad to lead your family well. So just know that that's coming on the back half of it, but I uh, just wanted to give you that fair warning. There's some heavy stuff. Probably not a good episode for you to listen to in the car with kids around or anything like that because there is some kind of heavier topics that we're talking about on the front end, real practical stuff for you to lead your family well on the back end. That being said, let's jump in with my new friend, Matt Parker. Matt, super excited that you decided to hang out with us today, man. For the audience who may not be familiar with you, tell us who you are and what you're up to these days. Uh, yeah, thanks. And hey, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Matt Parker, and I'm a dad, I guess, first and foremost, um, recovering youth pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm currently running a nonprofit organization globally called The Exodus Road. And we... The short of it is we rescue victims of human trafficking, partner with law enforcement to do that. Um, and we have about seven global offices, around 80 staff uh, helping us helping us do that. So that's kind of what I've been up to. That's great, man. Uh, that, that's all the stuff I want to dive into. Um, you know, most guys that start out in youth ministry don't think to themselves, I'm going to start youth ministry and then end in uh, human trafficking. That's the goal. In ministry, uh, usually there's some kind of like story behind that. How did this like become a passion of yours and something that you decided it, to dive into? Yeah, it was definitely not in the career path planning. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, 
<clears throat> I think it's a pretty natural organic evolution. And I say that because a lot of the kids for that find themselves trapped in slavery around the world are about the same ages uh, as our middle school and high school kids as we think about youth ministry. So, hmm. uh, and I've, I've been shocked and surprised as I've conducted undercover kind of clandestine work how the problems that kids have all around the world are such, are they're just very similar problems Mm, Yeah, and their worldviews are very similar. And so, you know, I think here in the United States in particular, we, we tend to have a greater protection mechanism for adolescents. And so as you expand your worldview, you start working and doing ministry globally. um, What you find are these kids that find themselves trapped in in slavery oftentimes just do not have that protection mechanism, whether it's the nuclear family or faith community or just society at large um, or law enforcement, for example, systems that we really trust to protect us. When you start to remove those as you step towards the global poor and those who are marginalized, um, kids just become increasingly more and more vulnerable. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the path, but, but, you know, when you rewind the tape for me, for Matt Parker, I went from youth ministry and leapt into international missions, which isn't such a big leap. Yeah. And I was running a children's home in Northern Thailand of impoverished uh, people groups, girls and boys, well, really girls at this home from the border regions of Burma or Myanmar. And as I just started to love on these kids, um, you know, these rumors kept surfacing in the community about Johns or brokers going to these remote villages and recruiting girls, only the pretty girls for work. Mm -hmm. But then as the story goes, we would discover that that work that was promised was not true. It was a lie. Hmm. And these pretty girls, these vulnerable, marginalized girls were then sold into prostitution, forced sex trafficking. And so for me as a leader, as a dad, that that's disruptive, right? As you yeah. start to work in your community and you hear that this uh, awful kind of perpetration of beautiful young girls was happening it was just so disruptive to my wife, Laura, and I that we felt compelled to lean into it. We didn't at the time know what that would look like. Like I would never have guessed that I would be an undercover operative in the human trafficking crime like that. That wasn't something I aspired to. It wasn't something I knew much about. But as you take these small steps towards human suffering, you kind of uh, I, I feel like God leads you through this path of saying yes to smaller things. <laughs> then yeah. after 10 years, you look back and you're like, holy cow, this this does feel like a big departure from where I began. Um, but it was really just a, a lot, maybe a thousand small decisions hmm. uh, towards freedom for the vulnerable. Hmm. Can I, that's a beautiful way of saying that. I want to tackle that subject in a little bit. Cause I think for any guy who's listening, who's just thinking, you know, I want to be used by God and then, you know, going from where they are right now to being an undercover 
you know, agent for the sake of human suffering around the world feels like a massive leap. You know, it's like that, that doesn't even feel like a reality, but I love the way you said that like a thousand small steps towards that. Um, I'd love to unpack that more, but I just, before we even go there, like I'd love to, uh, can you paint a picture? Like we, human trafficking, we hear these words often, um, probably not enough, but they, but they do come across our radar from time to time. And sure. whether it's a commercial or a church or a podcast or whatever, and I still think for many of us, it's just so vague and we don't really know, like, what does that mean? Uh, can you paint a picture for, and even, even the, the, the term, you know, human slavery, that's a hard, that's a hard concept for a lot of us here in the West to grasp. Like, what does that, what does that actually mean? You've been there, you, you've been undercover, uh, you, you've seen it face to face. What Paint a picture for us, for the guys who are just like, you know, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the most simple terms by, by which I think I can explain this is the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of exploitation. So that's like super heady, high level United Nations kind of vocabulary words. Yeah. But what it really looks like is you take someone who is vulnerable and that could be some child or a man and woman that's uneducated undereducated in some remote village and they're basically desperate for work and they will believe whatever you tell them. Hmm. And I liken it to winning the lottery. If I handed you a lottery ticket and I told you it was the winning ticket, but it's not been scratched off yet. um, There is a part of you, no matter how wealthy you are, that wants that to be true. Hmm. And the more poor you are, you start to actually need it to be true. Yeah. And you want to scratch that ticket off and believe that you were chosen, the miracles happened. So it could look like that, where uh, a broker or trafficker will exploit that type of desperation. Can I, sorry, can I interrupt you just so I can, so to add some clarity? Sorry, man. So, like, let's just say, for example, um, you know, one of these guys. I imagine it's a lot of men who go into these villages where they know somebody might be vulnerable. Families are vulnerable. Kids are vulnerable. Um, in the places that you've been, are there already like, do, don't they hear the stories? Like, no, don't sell your kids because these kinds of things are happening. Or, you know, when somebody comes and says, Hey, I've got a winning lottery ticket. Are there already rumors? Like, no, of course it's not a winning lottery ticket. Cause you know, they've tried to do this before in the village over or whatever. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, a lot of the places we call them source areas would have heard some amount of education or awareness campaign, you know, don't sell your kids kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but it, the problem is that this is really about labor migration. So although they may have heard that the job may not be real, there are certainly jobs that would be real. And mm. for example, here in the United States, when our teenagers grow up, uh, we tend to send them off to college for the job. And the, the difference might be that we have Google, we have the means and kind of the understanding to call references. Yeah. Um, whereas in the village, you know, although that they know there's exploitation that's possible, it doesn't always change their decision about the opportunity. Hmm. And I, and I like to explain it this way. When you're desperately poor, uh, you, you make desperate decisions. Yeah. And as much as that, we have actually rescued girls 
that have been taught about the, 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 the dangers of human trafficking and they still took the job wow. because they, they didn't feel like they had any other options, wow. even though they knew it might be risky. Um, they also knew that a small percentage of the time it turns out to be a legitimate job. Mm, mm. Um, so I think that's kind of like one extreme uh, example of what human trafficking could look like, but it could also look like uh, a young teenage girl here in the United States who's disenfranchised with mom and dad's rules um, and they run away from home. And within 24 hours of being on the street, there are people who drive around the street at night looking for runaway girls or boys. Mm -hmm. And those girls instantly are incredibly vulnerable. They typically don't have a place to stay. Um, they don't have money for food or anything like that. So these perpetrators will pull up alongside them and offer them shelter, offer them food. And oftentimes for the first couple of days or even weeks, there's no demand for anything in return. But eventually, and at some point, those men who were sheltering these runaway girls will demand payment in the form of sexual services or a leveraged sexual offering to a friend. And as the story typically goes in the United States, these girls uh, are exploited that way and find themselves trapped in a repayment situation. We call it debt bondage. And debt mm. bondage is kind of this 30,000 foot level tactic used all around the world to manipulate and enslave, there's that word slavery, uh, the vulnerable by making them feel obliged or uh, that they owe a debt. And then mm. at some point the trafficker will demand payment. And there's oftentimes physical violence if that sexual service isn't provided. And there's, so there's, there's this massive spectrum of what slavery can look like. But at the end of the day, there's some individual who is willing to exploit the vulnerability of a man or a woman or a child uh, and they will extort uh, those children at times by taking photos of them naked or threatening to leak information to their parents or their friends of something they've done wrong. Uh, we see this in the United States all the time through social media, Snapchat, uh, Facebook, Twitter. We rescue kids all around the world through those social media channels where girls and boys uh, may have even been duped into thinking, hey, there's this guy, he's older than me, but he really cares for me in ways my parents don't or my boyfriend doesn't. And and he wants me to send him a photo of myself that's, uh, you know, a little naughty. But as soon as that little girl sends that photo, he has something to extort her with. Uh, and they do. And so that rabbit hole for that victim just keeps getting deeper. And they just don't have the skills to know what to do about it. And there's a lot of shame involved. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of this spectrum of trafficking. It can really look like anything from kidnapping and, and, and acts of violence to a lot of, of acts of exploitation, uh, lying and, and, and luring these vulnerable people to false employment promises all the way to pretending to be a little girl's boyfriend and removing them from their protection mechanism so I can exploit and extort them. It, it, it just has so many different faces. I think that's why people struggle to really pinpoint what human trafficking is and what it looks like. So it can look like all those things. 
Yeah, I think too, um, and I, I, um, it's helpful for you to kind of paint that picture because I think for a lot of guys who, you know, this isn't part of our, it's out of sight, out of mind. They don't really, they don't, they don't see it. They don't hear about it a lot. And it just doesn't feel, it seems just so um, like there's just no way that's actually happening. Like I, I travel almost weekly now. Um, I'm in the airport almost every week and you see signs everywhere that says, you know, if you see a child in danger or you see something suspicious, report it. And I see those and I'm just like, is it happening that much that they're actually putting signs all over these airports? And, and obviously it is right. Obviously it is happening so much so that they're, they're actually trying to fight it by putting these signs everywhere. But you hear stories like what you just said, you know, I think for a normal guy who's listening to this and he's got a family and he's got a job and he's, you know, wife and stuff. And you hear stories like that. It just seems like, is, is this, how is this happening? Cause you, you feel like if a kid runs away, if my neighbor's daughter runs away right now, I feel like that, you know, it'd be on the news, right? (laughs) Like they're missing and, and why it'd be all over the news. But obviously this is happening in massive numbers. Why aren't we hearing about it? And, you know, is it, is it bigger than we think it is? Is it, you know, try to try to like paint that picture for the guys. Just like, is how in the world could this actually be happening underneath our nose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the scope of the problem is forty point eight million modern wow. day slaves today. That's an wow. estimated number, but the International Labor Organization estimates forty million plus in the world today, and that's everything from sex slavery to labor trafficking. So that's illegal palm oil plantations, illegal mining. Uh, where you're using slaves. A lot of the shrimp we eat in the United States is tainted with slave labor. Mm. Um, A lot of the chocolate, uh, the stuff that's inside your cell phone, a lot of the metals were mined with using slave labor overseas. So, and then there's the sex trafficking piece, which there's a lot of overlap between uh, sex trafficking and labor trafficking at times. Mm. So is it, is it happening? Yes. It's happening in every country on earth. Every mm. country is struggling with this exact form of exploitation. And one of the reasons why it's happening and it's so prolific is most corporations in the labor markets cannot see past two levels of their supply chain. So there's a lot of outsourcing that happens all around the world. And at some level, Apple or Nestle or Costco or these big corporations, they don't have a lot of transparency into the actual fisherman who's collecting the shrimp Hmm. or the child who might be farming the coca from the coke plants or uh, the palm oil plantations that are using children uh, to do the labor or the brick makers in Southern India or parts of Africa. And so all of these companies that are making so much money don't really have a lot of insight into who's actually in the supply chain. So that's kind of why the labor markets and the labor trafficking is such an issue. The sex trafficking is super interesting because that finds little fingers into pornography, which is, of course, consumed in masses here in the United States. It finds its way through escort services, which I know a lot of really wealthy business guys who travel a lot and they're like, hey, it's these girls are knowing and willing participants uh, in any sexual activity. They're consenting adults. When the thing that's impossible to know is whether or not that escort is under duress, if she has any mechanism of control, if she's under some form of debt bondage. Um, And so when you see girls run away, 
Uh, the reason it doesn't make the news oftentimes is a lot of girls run away in situations that are domestic violence or their families aren't doing so well, or they don't have a nuclear family. They don't have somebody who's going to advocate for them. People disappear out of the foster care system in a similar way. These, yeah. these runaways just aren't going to be newsworthy. And that doesn't mean though, that they're not valuable to us as a society, right, right. Uh, that they're not uh, incredibly vulnerable but the vulnerable people in the world are the ones that are the easiest to forget about. Mm. Uh, no one cares about them. You think about an orphanage, there's orphanages around the world, and we've done multiple cases where girls disappear out of an orphanage. Well, why would a trafficker target an orphanage? Because nobody cares about those kids. Nobody's going to miss those kids. They don't have that nuclear protection of a mom or a dad who's going to say, hey, where's my child? Um, street kids are another great example. If you travel outside the United States in particular, you'll notice there are kids all throughout the streets begging for money. These kids are desperately poor. Their parents are desperately poor. Easy to exploit those kids. Easy to just snatch those kids. Um, and most families of impoverished people groups or vulnerable people, they don't have an iPhone or uh, they don't really – they don't have any skills to do cyber intelligence gathering to potentially find their child being sold online. Mm. And so we have this bizarre system that's global now through the internet, through these social media accounts where we have perpetrators and predators, pedophiles pretending to be 17 and they're 60 or 50 years old. Jeez. And they're, they're luring our kids. They're luring them out. And it's happening here in the United States right underneath our noses. Mm. And uh, I know a lot of uh, the men that are listening to this podcast, they've probably been concerned about their kids' interactions online. Yeah. And a lot of my my friends here in town, you know, we we have the the blocker apps. We have we have these two, I have the circle here at my house. It's made yeah. by Disney. Yep. Just to try to get some amount of control because a lot of our kids, their entire social life is online. Uh, but it's a it's a marketplace that's been exploited uh, by perpetrators. Yeah, you have three teenagers. Like, what are you yeah. t- what are you telling your teenagers? Well, I don't know how popular this is going to be, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I, I don't right. let them have Facebook. You know, I'm just like, look, you know, wait till you're an adult. And um, so well, dude, not really let, let me let, let me media. let me just say this uh, for yeah. every dad listening right now. You're extremely popular. We all feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> We're all of us are yeah. just like none of us want our kids yeah. to have social media accounts, man. But uh, I think on the other side of that is my kids, I've, of course, because of what I do and they know what I do. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time teaching them about the dangers of social media and how these cases happen, how. How Google chats are really bad one right now here in the U.S. Yeah, walk These us kids, through practically for for the dad who has maybe a preteen yeah. teenager that has a, an account. They have a Snapchat chat or Facebook or Instagram. Well, yeah. How does this actually happen? So, a lot of schools in the United States are are headed in force to uh, to online schooling, and and one of the things that they do as students to communicate is they have Google Hangouts and Google Chat rooms that they hang out on, and we have many cases of pedophiles uh, hacking into those rooms and befriending these girls. And we have a very personal story here at the Exodus Road 
um, of, of this happening to a young girl in our community mm. where she was at school, on school property, on the school server, in a Google chat with other students. And this, this adult male who's in his 50s pops up and starts a conversation with these kids. Jeez. Well, the, the kids are not thinking, you know, they're at school. They, they think it's a safe environment. Yeah. And so they start dialoguing with this guy and they form a relationship. And that's so common. And then, but this guy is pretending to be 17 years old. And of course, he's just lavishing these young girls with compliments about how beautiful they are and how he thinks about them all day long. And, you know, he is feeding this feminine heart for acceptance, for mm. value. Mm. And then he starts to ask for favors. But because there's this emotional connection with an with a minor, these minors keep showing up, and eventually it leads to some for, form of extortion of a secret photo taken in the bathroom that now this this man has and can turn and threaten these girls with to say, "Hey, if you don't keep sending me photos, I'm going to share this one with your friends, or I'm going to make, you know, and all of a sudden this relationship turns toxic and these girls panic and they don't want to share. It's, it's called sextortion. Hmm. And, uh, you know, at the Exodus road, we have a whole little training kit uh, for teenagers about sextortion because it's a real problem. And it doesn't have to just be a 50 year old pedophile doing it. It can be a legitimate boyfriend who then you break up with, but you have given him access to photos of yourself that maybe you regret. Hmm. And then he has the power as a young 17 year old boyfriend to make you look bad and make him look good. All the things that we know about as dads, when we were kids, we just didn't have, you know, we had Polaroids. We didn't have digital, right? right. <laughs> you know, we didn't have digital photographs. And so it places these children in these situations of duress. And I see this all around the world. Every undercover operation I've ever been on, I've sat undercover and held the hands of teenage girls who look me in the eyes and they are trapped. Mm. There is some external force that they don't know how to fight. And it's a, it's typically adult men and women who have them, whether it's debt bondage or photos that they can use to extort them, ruin their relationship, tell mom and dad something that they've done. And, they just don't know what to do. And I, I, when I travel and speak, I like to share with uh, parents. I'm like, listen, what is it that you were doing that was so smart at the age of 14 or 15 years old? Right, right. You know, I could barely, you know, make it through school, let alone navigate some, you know, global criminal syndicate that I found myself caught up in. Yeah. Uh, or some type of extortion. I mean, these kids, they just don't have the skills, nor should they have to have them. Right, And so it's really on us as dads to make sure that our kids understand how this works um, and that we cannot just let our kids close the door up in their bedroom and have an alter life on Snapchat or, you know, be surfing pornography, be surfing, you know, these influences, you know, because if, if we allow that, they, they will be shaped by these people mm -hmm. and we don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are, these are strangers. And I just, you know, I, th I think dads just need to know I have a full-time job trying to undo all that. 
Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the interview so far. Make sure to stick around because we're going to get into some really practical, great parenting stuff on the back half of this interview. So don't leave. But before we do, I want to thank my friends over at Samaritan's Purse for sponsoring today's episode. If you were a dad who's looking for a way to lead your family, specifically how to teach your kids, how to just learn generosity and to really recognize that God isn't just working in your family, but he's working all over the world. I highly recommend that you get involved with Samaritan's Purse, specifically what they call their Operation Christmas Child Project. It's the biggest Christmas project of its kind. They've been helping millions of kids from around the world for a long time. They've been doing this for a long time and they really know what they're doing. And uh, this year they're hoping to help 11 million more children. What they do is they allow you, people like us or school groups or church groups, homeschool groups to pack these boxes, these shoe boxes. And they're full of stuff that might not seem like big things to you, but they really are life-changing things to many kids and families around the world. So you spend time together as a family or again, your group, your small group, your church group. You pack these shoe boxes is up. And as you're doing that, you're teaching your kids that God is working around the world, that we're generous with our time, our money, our stuff. You pack these shoe boxes, you're teaching your kids, and then these boxes get sent out all over the world. Again, this year they're trying to reach 11 million children around the world, and these kids will get these boxes. And what's cool is they get stuff that they need, but even beyond that, what Samaritan's Purse does, and I love this about them, is they're really focused on how can we disciple these kids who receive these boxes and really introduce them to the gospel. They don't just need stuff, they need Jesus, and they're really helping meet both of those needs. Uh, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing. We've partnered with them for the last couple of years, and I couldn't be more excited to just partner with them to help these children get tangible gifts and to hear the good news of Jesus. If you want to be part of this, which I highly recommend that you are, uh, go to SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. That's Operation Christmas Child. That's what that stands for. So again, SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. You can learn how to pack a shoebox again as your family, small group, a church group, a homeschool group, whatever. Uh, and then you'll also learn how you can build one online. But what's really important is that they have National Collection Week. We have to get these shoeboxes turned in on time so they can be sent out all over the world in time for Christmas. So those need to be collected by November 26th to 23rd. So you can go to SamaritansPurse.org, figure out how to build one of these shoe boxes and then where to drop them off so they can be shipped out. Highly recommend that you do this as a dad with your family. Uh, with that being said, let's dive back into today's episode. Dude, it's infuriating and terrifying. Um, so many emotions, are, you know, my, I can feel my chest tightening up as I think about <clears throat> these stories that you're, you're telling. You've, you've mentioned a few times that you, you've done these undercover things. What stories stick out to you when you think about some of the undercover stuff you've done? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've got a lot, but I'll, I'll try to keep it to the fun ones. Uh, you know, I think uh, years ago, maybe seven years ago, uh, I was working in Bangkok and I got called by law enforcement to do a particular case. And I was undercover in a very popular red light district. And one of the things that my team and I do when we go undercover, we interview girls uh, in public environments. So we're in the brothel uh, sitting next to a potential victim. And we ask them a, a myriad of questions. And part of that is to learn their situation. You know, are they there? you know, how did you get this job? Or, or, you know, are you here for the money? Are you here because you owe money? You know, tell me the story. But one of the questions that I like to ask all around the world is, do you like your job? Hmm. Because I think that there's this belief, especially for us as men, 
because oftentimes we don't think with our brains mm-hmm. that all these girls, these beautiful girls here in this strip club or this brothel, man, they just love sex and they just love what they're doing. Look, they're so they're smiling, they're flirty, they're having a great time. Surely these girls are not traffic victims. And we don't really give it a whole lot of thought because we're there selfishly, most men, to satisfy some kind of sexual dream or fantasy or desire. So when I ask that question, and I've been, I have been in over 2,000 brothels wow. in maybe seven countries. Wow. Um, and I can tell you I have only had one woman out of thousands who, tells, who told me she liked what she did. Hmm. And I went, so, you know, she was super sweet, this girl, and she was new. She'd only been working in this brothel for 24 hours or so. And I, uh, you know, left to continue my work. And about two months later, I found myself, uh, again, working undercover on the same street. And I went into the brothel and I saw her. And of course, she recognized me. She came and hugged me and sat down with me. And I asked her again, you know, do you like, do you like what you're doing? And she looked at me with hollow eyes and Mm. she says, I absolutely hate this. I hate sex. I hate men. I just, you know, this, this idea that she had had, uh, was ruined for her. Her sexuality had been ruined and not ruined forever. Of course, I believe in redemption, but The truth, the truth is that these women, it is not their dream to sleep with old fat guys. Right. Um, but but it's there's no one to like protect them, their innocence, their sexuality. They're caught up in this mechanism that churns out e- exploitation and debt and slavery. And most of the time, women, it takes them about four years to earn off their debt bondage uh, because traffickers charge interest for uh, lodging for, for everything. And so you have to sleep with around 10 men a night just to meet your quota each month. And most of the debts around five to 10,000 us dollars around the world. That's, that's the number for whatever reason that the syndicates will strap onto these children for their bus ticket and their lodging and their cell phone. They find ways to, convince these girls uh, to, to get into debt. And then the interest is overwhelming. Um, so I think I tell that story because I think at the very base level, you know, you would drive by most prostitutes on a street corner, women in a red light district, and you would think, or even escorts, online escorts. And you would think these girls are knowing and willing participants in the sex trade and they absolutely love it. And that is an absolute lie. That is not true. And I think a lot of guys, we, we don't think about the precious men and women that are exploited in the world, but these people, um, they are victims and they are, they are forced and beaten actually, Mm. if they don't act like they're having a good time. Jeez, man. I imagine dude, that, that, being you've you've been in you said thousands of these brothels how intense is that being undercover like it's got to be dangerous for you to go in and do that right yeah it is dangerous and 
the criminal syndicates that operate in moving large volumes of girls, they have tactics to protect their business, like any good mafia. And so we have spent a decade doing this work. We've rescued 1,500 kids around the world and arrested 600 traffickers and pedophiles. Wow. But in doing that, we've had to really figure out what are these methods that they have to protect their business and how do we navigate those? But it is, it does come with some risk uh, for sure. Um, But at the same time, I think for me, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist. I (laughs) I always like to talk about this. And I, you know, we we were so rule heavy, you know, And so a brothel is kind of like the opposite of what a good Christian should go hang out in. <laughs> and, and I was, I was a really good Baptist. I didn't go to strip clubs. I didn't do any of that stuff. I was a straight laced, good Baptist boy. It wasn't until God took me to Christian missions <laughs> where I felt the call of God on my life to go hunt down his kids Mm. that were enslaved in the darkest corners in the world. Mm. And that was going to mean exposure to things that I'd really avoided my entire life. Yeah. Not just the physical risk to my own person, but that spiritual, emotional kind of marital risk of like, Hey, how's my marriage going to survive me going undercover into thousands of brothels? You know, how, how do I behave as a godly man in an environment? where there is nakedness and all kinds of drugs and debauchery and, and physical threat, like how in the world. And I used to say to people that, you know, the way I look at the gospel is that Jesus left the the comfort of heaven to come to the brothel of earth Mm -hmm. to rescue a prostitute like Mm -hmm. me. And it, it's all about, how you how the kingdom of God expands and how God himself expands. Hmm. And so as you enter into these, these dark corners where there's a child enslaved and you have to go behind the black curtain or you have to put yourself in harm's way, there's this sense of peace too. Um, this exposure to the fact that God is not absent. If he's omnipresent, that means he's in the brothel too. That's right. Yeah. And if God can be in there, then I'm invited. Mm. Um, And as I go into these places, I think um, the physical risk is there. I think more important to me than the physical harm that might come if we make a mistake is really the spiritual and emotional trauma of how can I be a Christian and be in these places? And the answer to it is so simple. And it has to do with our, um, it's really our heart for these people. And as you enter into the brothel, the most obvious thing is that no one in this place is pretending. The girls are pretending to, to maybe enjoy it. But when you sit down with them and talk to them, or when they dance on a stage, or when you sit next to a trafficker, or when you talk to a John who's going to buy a girl that night. They are the most hollow people, Mm. the the saddest people I've ever met in my life. Mm. And all of a sudden, you, you start to understand this environment is full of broken people. 
Yeah. They're just broken. And the traffickers are broken. They're willing to exploit someone for money. The girls are impoverished and broken and desperate. The Johns are lonely. The loneliest men in the world couldn't find love anywhere else. They had to go buy it in some mm. Southeast Asian brothel. Mm. And when you engage with them, it's just so clear how desperately lonely and, and spiritually bankrupt that they are. And so all of a sudden, these environments that are supposed to be sexual environments are not sexual at all. They feel like a mortuary full of dead people. Mm, wow. Um, and we get to be light in dark places. And so I know that that's pretty oversimplified perspective. Um, there's a lot of nuance to it. And of course, yeah, we spend a lot of time training how we conduct ourselves in these environments in the clandestine space, protect ourselves, protect girls, protect everybody. Yeah. Um, give, give us some stories of like, Give us some good news, man. It's been heavy. You know, what? Yeah. tell some good good stories of redemption. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, one of the things that is so important to me is that we make d- trafficking a dangerous thing to do. I think as, as a dad, as a contributing member to society, Uh, It's pretty easy to talk about human trafficking, but are we making trafficking a dangerous thing to participate in? And one example is maybe seven, maybe about nine years ago when we first started 10 years ago, I could walk you through major commercial red red light districts and we could find fairly easily a 12 year old child for sale. And I'm happy to say that after a decade, that's really hard to do. Hmm. That is a difficult ask um, in, a, in a major uh, commercial red light district. And so I have to believe it's not just the Exodus Roads effort. There's lots of nonprofits fighting this issue. And the thing that's really cool is traffickers have become aware of us. Hmm. And not, not the Exodus Road, aware of the nonprofit community that cares for these kids. They know we work with law enforcement. A lot of their friends have been arrested. A lot of their customers have been arrested. They know that the nonprofits fighting this are behind that. And it's, it's made them a little bit afraid Mm. to operate cautious. So now they hide the young, young girls and make it harder for you to find them. They still are selling them all around the world, but it's a little harder to find them. And I find that to be incredibly hopeful. Um, I don't think that human trafficking is ever going to end. Mm. Uh, until heaven, just like I don't think the drug trade is going to end. But we can suppress it. We can make it a dangerous crime to commit. Um, And I believe that. And and we we have really started to see the streets are changing. Human trafficking is changing. And uh, that doesn't feel probably as hopeful as, uh, you know, whether if we had have, you know, rescued 400,000 kids in one shot and you know, all of them are living happily ever after. But I think for us, we are talking about 40 million slaves. And so we have to be about reconfiguring, suppressing the structures that allow for 40 million slaves to exist. That is so many people. It's, it's crazy amount of people. Yeah. 
So how do we change the system of corruption, the, the systems within society that allow it, uh, the laws that allow it? Uh, how do we make sure that the traffickers are placed on notice that you cannot sell a 12-year-old child in, in broad daylight and not have consequences? There will be consequences. So I know that that, for me, that feels like this huge win that trafficking has has been dealt a blow and continues to be dealt these significant blows here in the United States and abroad. Uh, but we're really just just kind of getting started. Uh, but I can say that it, it's working. Hmm. I'm thinking about the the dad who turned on this podcast today, and he's like, you know, I'm I'm going to do my best to try to get equipped to lead my family well. And he heard everything you you shared today, and he's just like, oh man, this is heavy. Like. And it, I, I imagine that it's overwhelming for a lot of guys. Like, I don't even know where to begin. You know, I'll, you know, I'll try to make sure that my kids don't have Instagram or they're not on Snapchat by themselves or things like that, you know, but like, where does it, what would you say to the young dad? who's just like, I, I can see you've painted a picture where this is a massive problem, but I don't even know where to begin. Like this feels super overwhelming. What is it? What do you say to that dad? Yeah, it's family and community. You know, you start with your family. And as much as I think the concept of trafficking feels somehow like big, it's really not any larger than than a criminal who might want to kick down your door and steal from you. You know, it's the same dad instinct of protection. You know, what do you need to do to protect your home and then protect your kids when they're outside of the home? And the good thing is, if, if your kids are engaged in a safe and healthy community, there's going to be natural protections for them. Um, but you as a dad are ultimately right, responsible for the safety of your family. That's one of our main charges as a, as a dad is to protect. And some of that is not allowing them to use Facebook or social media, or at least making sure that you and them are educated on the dangers and then have that dialogue regularly as a dad with your kids. Uh, talk about sex with your kids. I can't probably stress that enough. Here at the Parker family, we love talking about sex. I love talking about sex with my <laughs> kids. It's so awkward. It's so funny. And they roll their eyes at me, but I want to equip them with knowledge about sexuality. I want to demystify that, and I want to empower my kids to be a part of this protection uh, especially as they've entered into the later teenage years. When did you um, start doing that and what did it look like practically? Yeah. So when they were right around puberty, um, I, I have this cool thing we do with our kids when, when they were born, we did not give them a middle name hmm. and we, we didn't do that on purpose. And it was kind of, kind of went like the, I actually robbed this. I hijacked this as from an African tradition. Hmm. Where when our kids were born, Laura and I, my wife, we prayed over them. We gave them names that we wished for them. You know, the meanings of their names were kind of these dreams we had for our kids. Yeah. So what my you, son's what, name yeah, is Cade. It mean? means warrior. Mm. You know, I wanted my son to be a warrior, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we didn't give them a middle name because when they hit puberty, we wanted to have this, oh, this discipline as parents to set aside our individual dreams for our kids and start to pray 
and seek out what God's dream was for our kids and what we saw in their personalities and their talents that God had put in them. That's good. And we wanted a name to represent that. And it was this exercise to release our kids to God's care and to launch them into the world being on God's team <laughs> for what God's dreams were for our kids. And so we did that, which has nothing to do with trafficking. So when they're around puberty, we have a dad trip. I get to steal one of my kids away and we go on a, a week long journey. I took my son Cade to Moab. We mountain biked. I took my oldest daughter to drive highway one up the coast of California, all the way to Washington. We camped in the Redwood National Forest, and I got to give them their new name. Hmm. But part of that trip, I cover the top five disciplines I want them to have as they launch away from me. And one of them is a healthy sexuality. (laughs) Hmm. And so we start talking about these really awkward things about, you know, pornography and a healthy sexual relationship. And what I believe is the compass of values that they, I would love for them to adopt uh, as their sexual values. I'm not giving them a roadmap of exactly how to do it, but it's really about having, giving them a compass that will guide them through the uncharted waters of their life. Hmm. And so for, for us at the Parker family, we've, we've taken this, this thing called sexuality that, that you don't talk about as a Southern Baptist (laughs) and we've put it in the very center of our launching and coaching and mentoring them into adults. Mm. And I just feel like it's one of the most powerful tools I can give them as a dad. Yeah. And then when we talk about human trafficking, you have this, this cornerstone conversation about healthy sexuality and healthy friendships. That's another big thing we talk about. So that when they encounter someone in a chat room, they know the signs to look for of an unhealthy, exploitive relationship. And we're talking about that all the time. And a lot of dads listening today, you probably wouldn't have these words to articulate it, but you're talking about it all the time too, because your girls and your boys, they come home from school and what do they do? You won't believe what my friend said, and I got stabbed in the back and, you know, there's a picture floating around the hallways. Guys, that is your invitation just to enter into these conversations with your kids and talk about values and relationships. What is a healthy relationship? How to spot the bully in the room and how do we respond to bullies? They're this. So I think sexuality is a, a, a part of this broader conversation that leads us as dads to protect our kids. Mm. Um, And then as our kids age, we go from being as dads of young kids, fully responsible for their protection and safety to where around the time when I was giving them new names, I invited them to participate in their safety. It wasn't just my job anymore. That, we, that they were starting to shoulder that with me through their decisions. Hmm. And slowly, slowly peeling back my fingers and hands of protection and control and inviting them to stand on our values together. So 
I know that sounded all pretty preachy, but that's kind of what we do no, here. That's good, man. Yeah. What, yeah. What, I, what I took away from that was a dad who is being proactive versus a dad who is being reactive. And yeah. I, I just think that that's what spiritual leadership looks like. It is stepping into the conversation first instead of reacting yeah. to everything. And we just have so many dads, man, who are just passive and so many men who are passive. And then when it, when, oh, oh, geez, I didn't want to talk about this, but now it's in my face and I guess we're going to have to talk about it. Now I'm trying to react. And dude, we just need more men like that. Like what you were doing is saying, I'm going to step into it first. I'm going to be the one to bring up the hard things and I'm going to, I'm going to be proactive about where we're going as a family and where I want you to go as my child before we just find ourselves reacting all the time. And those are, dude, that's the narrow road. That's hard stuff. Most guys don't want to do that. And that's the kind of like dying to self I imagine Jesus was talking about. Um, this is one sliver of dying to the self where I'm going to make myself uncomfortable. I'm going to make my family uncomfortable for the glory of God. And and, to, and so, that you know, we're stepping into hard conversations for the glory of God. Um, dude, I would love to hear, if you don't mind sharing, what, what were their middle names? And did you have them picked out? What did you have them picked out when they were born? Or did you like, you were praying and just like, how is God shaping them? What were their characteristics? Where's God moving them? And then you like came up with them later. So we did not know what they would be. Uh, it was really about us as parents intentionally trying to to see who God had made them and who God was making them. Hmm. And so, you know, we, we kind of around 12, 13 years old, 14 years old, my daughter, we named her first. And I, I told all my kids, look, I don't know when you will be renamed <laughs> hmm. when you're ready. So it, it drove them crazy because they all wanted <laughs> to have the dad trip, you know, hmm. Um and so my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Kelpie, who's now 17, she, uh, she was named first and she was named when she was 13. She was ready. I could see it in her. And, uh, Kelpie's an eight on the Enneagram. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Enneagram. She's just this full yeah. of life. Come at me, bro. Yep. She's a boxer. She's tough. Nice. Um, but there is something about her that is intoxicating she's super kind and she she loves people fiercely mm. so we named her light uh and we she at the time was just so in love with lord of the rings and uh, <laughs> we named her leora which means light um mm. but it was this quote uh when she got handed the crystal or when um i think frodo and uh sam we're at the elven kingdom in the woods and there's this light of L'Oreal or I can't remember the name now, but it was similar to, to what we named her Leora, hmm. just that she represents this light. And so I got to name her in Jedediah national Redwood national park wow. by a river. It was so, it was so perfect this moment between us. And so I just got to call out and say out loud what I saw God doing in her. I love that. I love um, it. And then my son uh, is Liam, uh, is the name we gave him. And uh, I'm trying to remember now. I think it means friend of, what is it? Protector of, of people, something like that. Hmm. Liam. And the thing about my son is he's huge. He's you know, six two, taller than me, weighs more than me. He's fifteen years old. This guy, he should be a football <laughs> player, and he's strong. He can absolutely beat me in arm wrestling. <laughs> but Cade, you know, for all of his strength, his spirit is so gentle, mm. and 
he is not afraid to stand up for the kid that's being bullied, but he also does not want to hurt anyone. Mm. And so his name just, you know, really met, it just matched with who God was making him. Yeah. It means guardian protector. I'm looking at that. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So, you know, Kate is just, uh, and you know, none of my kids are using their middle names. Like they're not, they're not going around changing their names to their friends. And, and I told them, look, this name is really more for, for what we see God doing in you than right. a name that you have to go use. But it's really for us as parents releasing them uh, into their adulthood um, slowly but surely. Yeah. What I love about that, man, is so cool. First of all, I, I was like, how do I immediately go to the government and cancel my kids' middle names off their birth certificate <laughs> so I can do this exercise with it? <laughs> this is, I just love it. Um, but I think the, the, the heartbeat behind the names is a dad speaking over identity over their kids. This is like, here's who I see God has made you. And I'm going to speak this identity as your father. Uh, I'm partnering with God as your dad to speak over and help you identify this is who God has made you to be. And dude, if we had dads doing that on a regular basis, how much heartache would our kids avoid by not going out into the world and saying, I don't know who I am and I'm going to just experiment with a million different things or make a million different mistakes because in, in, in hopes that I can find my identity, um, man, when a dad speaks identity over his kids, there's just something so, so powerful. So, I, I mean, you've, you've done that very tangibly with the name thing, but I think any dad can do that. Any dad could be speaking identity over his child and saying, this is who God's made you to be. You don't need to go out and chase it elsewhere because this is who he has made you to be. And I'm speaking it over you, man. That is so powerful, man. I really, I'm so grateful you shared that with us. Uh, Matt, dude, this has been uh, so many things. I felt a lot of emotions <laughs> having our conversation with you today. Um, but I am hopeful, man. I'm, I'm hopeful that, like you said, uh, that if, if God's in it, he's inviting us into it, you know, I'm paraphrasing your words there, but I just love, we can step into the darkest areas of, of this world, um, because God's there. And if he's there, he's invited us to be part of that redemption story. And so I, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. And you said that you took a thousand small steps and, uh, would you just end kind of the heartbeat behind that? Maybe some guy, you know, most guys listening to this aren't going to end up in Thailand undercover, right? Maybe some. And I, you know, I pray that there are more guys who step into this and really, you know, take charge into protecting the vulnerable. But God has called all of us into some kind of adventure for the sake of his uh, kingdom and the redemption of the world. And some guy just needs to take like that first of a thousand steps. What would you just say to that guy kind of as a closing thought here? Yeah. I think I would say don't wait for someone to give you permission or tell you what to do. Hmm. And this is from my own experience. When I first encountered the problem of human trafficking, um, it it became obvious to me what needed to be done, but no one was kind of there to tell me I could do it. I should do it, um, how to do it. And, And so you can kind of find yourself, I think as a young man, a young dad, a young leader, paralyzed by your own fears or lack of permission. I think I felt that. Mm. I, I guess I maybe the way that I was raised through the church, I kind of felt like Christian ministry should be sanctioned or led by somebody else, or mm. you needed to be part of 
of some really big strategic thought. But, but what I started to feel compelled to do is just take these steps towards what I felt God was placing on my heart. And guys, I didn't have an answer. I didn't know what to do. All I knew was I was restless. I was, I was uh, disrupted. And I just started to take steps towards it. And that looked like a thousand things, research, conversations. But no one was telling me I could or couldn't. I just felt, I just took it upon myself to move forward through prayer and action. Um, so I think that that's what I would encourage men who are listening to this to consider is don't just sit on your hands. You know, God can't steer a parked car, you know, start heading towards the thing that's on your heart that the spirits led you to. And he is faithful. God is faithful to open and closing doors. I know that's oversimplified, but that's how I was raised. Those Southern Baptists, God opens and closes doors. And I love that analogy because it is so simple. Just start, just get up and walk towards it. Um, invest your time, your talent, your treasure to what God's placed on your heart. And then you'll look back after two or three years of consistently walking towards something and you will see God will have steered you in the directions you should have gone. Hmm. And it might end up in a brothel in Southeast Asia. That's a pretty weird one. I can't figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. um, but I look back on it and it's absolutely miraculous uh, hmm. what God will do with five loaves and two fish and a willing heart. Hmm. Um, he takes the insufficiency and he supplies it. And it has very little to do with us except our willingness to obey and our courage to follow God wherever he may take us. And we're probably not going to end up where we thought we would. We yeah. never would have signed up for it if we would have known yep. what it would have cost. But that's kind of this faithful adventure with the spirit of God is to say, I want your kingdom. And that's going to look like however God chooses to use insufficient men uh, to elevate uh, his love uh, for us here on planet Earth. I mean, that's what I'd say is just don't don't freeze up. Don't lock up. Just start taking steps of faith uh, based on what the spirits lead me to do. Yeah, man, that's an encouraging word. I think there are a lot of guys who need to hear that. And the truth is we already know what God's called us to. He's made it pretty clear in the scriptures. And so oftentimes we're just waiting for this loud voice to tell us where to go. And I, I love what you said, man, just go. And, uh, and, and go until God says, don't go there anymore. Don't do that anymore, but better to just start moving forward until God says otherwise than to sit on your hands and wait. And, um, man, this was so encouraging, Matt. I'm so thankful you took the time to hang out with us today, bro. This was, this was helpful. Thanks, Jared. I appreciate it too. It's been fun. 